0: Getting ready, you know, getting prepared for the show. I open up the doc and I see you saw a post on Stacker News that I really was fascinated by this week. It's a personal account of living in Turkey. A is that how you say it now. I think Turkey. Yeah. Okay. All right. Under soaring inflation, um, but what he talks about to me as I was reading, and you know, they have wild inflation over there. You probably remember the numbers. It really felt like kind of what's beginning to happen here in the states, and I imagine
1: other places in the West as well. Absolutely. And I think this ties back to our discussion of how consumer price inflation indexes are very tricky things to get right, and they generally are built for a specific purpose. So the U.S. CPI is used to adjust the income for people on government benefits, so retirees and also the uh, wage increases of some government employees. And so when you look at the CPI and you think, gosh, that seems a lot lower than the costs I'm experiencing in my daily life, it's because the CPI wasn't made for you. Also, a piece we're going to dive into with Lin Alden explains how even as the rate of inflation is falling, the overall price level never falls. It only goes up. And that right. kind of makes sense. I <laughs> feel that. <laughs> if you think about the dynamics of an of a fiat system, the amount of base money in circulation, because it's tied to U.S. government debt, it's never going down because the U.S. government isn't reducing its amount of debt in circulation. It's increasing it. At the same time, there's a lot of psychology and human behavior in how prices work. And so in general, in Turkey, imported goods are getting much more expensive because the Turkish lira is weakening with regards to the U.S. dollar and other currencies. And also, like some goods will get more expensive. And it generally relates to the merchant or the producer of those goods market power, because some producers don't have a lot of competition just because of the nature of those goods. If you think about maybe car manufacturers or I'm actually struggling to find a good example.
0: Well, just think of how in the last year, Tesla prices have come down as the other manufacturers have introduced EVs.
1: Right. And that's a good example of how Tesla didn't have a moat around EVs. They initially had more pricing power. Yeah.
0: They had a lead that they... You know, there's something else in here. The inflation sort of encourages people to spend more because it creates this sort of mindset of, well, I'll buy this today. Like I was thinking about this with my GTI. I bought a GTI in 2018 and uh, it's worth more than I owe on it <laughs> now. Just with inflation and stuff and, and some of these used car prices, it, it's wild. Like a car's never been an investment in my entire lifetime. And I think I could actually sell it and walk away with a few hundred bucks.
1: But it actually won't solve any problems for you because the replacement cost is also higher oh, with yeah. inflation.
0: Absolutely. What this gal says in her account is it it sort of leads people to get into debt because they want to buy now. So they put it on debt and then they end up getting up to their eyeballs in debt and the cost of living keeps going up. I think that's happening to a lot of people here. And then also the divergence in price increases is something I've really been. Paying attention to through the holiday season and just now. In the last week, my television died in my RV, my living room television. And I've always kind of been plotting and waiting to replace this television. And I I thought to myself, oh boy, here we go. You know, I probably should have bought a TV during Black Friday. Inflation's probably gone crazy. The price of televisions is probably skyrocketed. And I go to Costco and they've got they've got like 55-inch televisions for $350. I picked up a like medium-tier LG. 43 inch television for 260 bucks. I can't believe like inflation has not like as far as the TVs uh, and the, some of those electronics are concerned like inflation doesn't exist in those products. But then I go over as I'm leaving Costco and I grab some food that was once ten dollars and it's now seventeen dollars. And a year ago it was eight dollars. And so each time I've come to Costco, it's gone up in price. But the TV is two hundred fifty dollars for way more TV than I had originally, which the first TV would have been a thousand dollars. But you know, two you know a couple of years ago, like it just blows my
1: mind how inflation on electronics is nothing. Well, this is actually a perfect example of how complicated this process is because I would speculate that part of the reason that LCD screens have gotten so cheap is that LCD technology is... Relatively low hanging fruit in the complexity of semiconductor manufacturing. And it's also one of the technologies that was transferred somehow to China very early on. A bunch of engineers from applied materials uh, went over back to China and started competing businesses with state subsidies. And as a result, a lot of Chinese firms started producing components and full LCD, TV, and monitor systems. And this just created a glut. There was just a An absolute glut of LCD manufacturing capacity that was built out in China partially due to state subsidies. And this has depressed prices in this segment of the market ever since. And so even with monetary inflation, the fundamental supply of this technology has been expanded such that prices seem to still go down in the face of inflation.
0: It struck me as this is what a lot of us have been experiencing at scale for a while. That's why, you know, you can have 2% inflation for 30 years, and we didn't really notice it because the the cost of goods was going down because the cost to make them was going down. But one other element of this that struck home for me. I've noticed this in the car repair and in the RV service industry. There's been an impact on craftsmanship because traditional craftsmanship jobs, I mean, really great cabinet building where we needed somebody to come in and fix something for us and they really needed to know how to just custom build cabinetry that could just fit right in. Nobody does that because because it takes 10, 15 years of apprenticeship to get to some of these master levels and nobody can afford to do that anymore. You need a job that pays $100,000 as fast as, as possible or 50, whatever it is for your region. I'm in the Seattle area. And so you can't be an apprentice for five, 10 years. That's ridiculous. So nobody has the time to do it. I was talking to a a great, great mechanic. He's run his shop for 20 years. He's a really honest, trustworthy guy. And he says, Chris, I just can't retain guys anymore. I've been going through guys faster than I've seen ever. And some of it is they want to be paid more. And some of it is they can go get a job with you know less responsibilities that pays around the same over here. He's like, there's, there's just a handful of reasons. There's not one particular reason, but the net result is, is they cannot retain people to learn these skills. And so all of their guys are aging out. Their best skilled people are in their fifties and sixties and they're getting ready to retire. And he doesn't know what he's going to do. And that is also part of this account that really resonated with me is the fiat impact on craftsmanship. You know, you can go make more money doing something online or being an Amazon reseller for a bit. Like there's just. There's just not a lot of
1: incentives to become a great skilled tradesman anymore. Right. Because inflation moves time preferences forward. That's why when there are these inflationary episodes, there's often a critique of young people. Oh, young people don't have the patience for this anymore. Oh, young people are loading up on debt. How irresponsible. I disagree. I think they're responding to incentives. If you can service your debt burden, loading up on debt in an inflationary environment is a great idea because inflation is actually reducing the cost of holding this debt over time. You're leveraging up in a clever way if you can support it. And if you're on the edge and you need materials to survive, debt also makes sense because if you don't get food and shelter and whatnot, your life enters a spiral and then it ceases. So, of course, you'll load up on debt in that situation. And so, I don't think that there's any sort of moral failing or bad generational shift going on here. I think people are just responding to the incentives of the overall macro environment. And they don't even realize
0: it. You know what? Like people are just, they're just trying to survive. And it is a matter of incentives. And so, they- they just act in a certain way. Last but not least, a couple other things they touched on to just sort of combat this is skill accumulation. It's absolutely something I've been focused on for the last few years. Both in gardening, we, we, this last summer we had a little mini farm going but also in trying to do as many of our own home repairs and car repairs as we can. And the other thing, there's several others in here, like Bitcoin and leveraging currency differences and whatnot. But the other one that really struck me is direct sourcing. You know, I, I've been trying to do that as much as possible as well, in part because it's, it's about now, you know, it used to be really expensive to go buy a cow for example. But I actually am not sure. It may may be cheaper now with the prices in the market, but also the quality of the product when you direct
1: source takes more time. When you go through the hassle of getting a farmer and a butcher, because you need both, it's actually three parties. A farmer, then the, I don't know what the right term is, the slaughterer. Like someone actually has to kill and process the cow to provided to the butcher who then processes it for your consumption. And you can't cut any of these entities out. And so the first time I bought a cow, I was really like just trying to do all the math and figuring it out. And it's very different than a retail experience because you yeah. know, if you yeah. go to Costco, you're going to buy, pay, you know, whatever, $25 for three packs of ground beef. But with a cow, you don't quite know what the weight of the cow is when you're getting it. And then you don't know if that cow was like skinny or fat and what, what the actual yield will be. And so there's a couple of question marks there, which I you have to kind of wrap your head That's around. You got
0: you to gotta trust who you're working with.
1: Yeah, for sure. And also, this is an incentive of high prices, because in an environment of high prices and supply chain bottlenecks, every middleman now adds on a percent. They always did, but we didn't care so much previously because we were in sort of a generally deflationary environment. Prices were falling. And now those middlemen's cuts have become quite significant and incentivize us to go deeper down the supply chain, to get closer to the source and to do more of those conveniences of managing the delivery, et cetera, ourselves. So we're just responding to incentives too.
0: I try to look at
1: it as a positive thing, you know, connection is protection. And now I've got,
0: you know, a meat guy. And so now if I want to source my pork, I'm going to go to the guy I'm sourcing my beef from and we say, Hey, who do you recommend for pork? Right? And so connection begets connection. And I'm going, it's networking. It's networking that my introvert self could happily neglect because I didn't need to in a system where the supermarket or the steaks at Costco were, you know, fairly priced or what I considered well-priced at the market rate. And I was just happy going to Costco and getting the end product result in nice styrofoam packaging, all wrapped in plastic. But, uh, you know, like you said, the incentive shift and it's better because now I've got a relationship. I didn't have a relationship with the butcher at Costco and I've got a relationship now and with somebody I trust you know we're going to do a little cookout for for birthdays next weekend and i'm going to go to this guy and get something special just for that and i know it's going to be great and I didn't have to do that before, but I'm glad I did it. So even though I was sort of forced into this situation based on economic incentives, I choose to look at it as a positive thing. And I'll say this too. I found him because I was looking at uh, butchers that accept sats. And through looking through that, I found these folks and I figured, well, these are probably pretty
1: smart folks. And I ended up paying him in fiat, actually, but. <laughs> well, that's just the incentive. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> Geffen's law. Bad money drives out good. I probably will, though, next year. So this year, actually. Wow time to do it again. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on January 5th, 2024. First episode of the new year, and I'm recording remotely as always with me. Hey, happy new year everybody. Hey there. Hi. Thanks for joining us. It's Chris. Uh, that's me. Did I introduce myself? Maybe I forgot. I'm I'm a Bitcoin dad. Well, I guess
0: it's kind of obvious. That's dad. If I'm Chris, that's dad. We're also dad. I'm a dad. We're both dads.
1: On today's episode, we're going to discuss how even BlackRock and JP Morgan cannot fight against the financial incentives of Bitcoin. Because even if JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon says Bitcoin should be banned in a Senate hearing, JP Morgan is also an authorized participant in BlackRock's spot Bitcoin ETF. Money to be made, Jamie. It also turns out that Sam Bankman-Fried, the scammer, Ponzi schemer, etc., behind the FTX crypto exchange, will not be tried for his political crimes. Perhaps getting into the details might be politically disruptive during a presidential election year. In economics, even though India authorized the payment of rupees for oil, it turns out that this payment rail has higher transaction costs and uncertainty than paying in dollars, and so no one's using it. So this is an interesting counter story to de-dollarization narratives. We can get into that. Lynn Alden has a new newsletter about the divergence in U.S. monetary and fiscal policy I think in many ways, she's taking a victory lap after two years of really excellent uh, macro forecasting and analysis. A lot of her models of how macroeconomic trends might play out seem to have come true. So I think that is a really useful read. And then in privacy and Bitcoin education, we're going to discuss UTXO consolidation. Consolidating UTXOs is a way to save money on fees in the future, potentially, but it also comes with privacy trade-offs. So we'll go through that. And then we've got some feedback and boosts, and that's our show.
0: All right. Okay. Well, let's get into that then. I can't believe here we are just a mere three or four weeks since Jamie Dimon scripted in front of Elizabeth Warren during a Senate testimony, said that if he was running the government, he would shut crypto down. He's never liked it. He's commented once that when he said that publicly, his daughter calls him and calls him stupid. Because she owns Bitcoin, but he continued to talk crap even just a few weeks ago. I thought he was
1: calling his daughter stupid because she owned Bitcoin. Maybe he was. (laughs) And she clearly wasn't. I think she's done very well with that. Maybe he was. But it seems even though he would, quote,
0: shut it down, Jamie Dimon's not so opposed to making a lot of money off of Bitcoin.
1: Or maybe he's more of a politician at this point and not as up to date on the day to day activities of JP Morgan. It's embarrassing. I mean, I could understand if
0: it was like, a. I mean, this is a big deal. This is a this is a big deal in the financial community. And uh, spoiler alert, JP Morgan is involved with multiple spot Bitcoin ETFs. Multiple,
1: not just one. (laughs) Like, how could he not know about that unless he's totally, totally detached? This gets into the Bitcoin spot ETF story. And currently, I think the most followed analysts on this story are predicting a 90% chance that we will have a Bitcoin spot ETF approval by our next episode. But the way that ETFs are structured in the US is you essentially have authorized particular. So, they're not the company that manages the ETF. They are third parties. They have a contract in place that allows them to redeem and create shares in the ETF. And the way that the ETF, which is a a paper product based on an underlying asset. The way that the shares of this ETF track the price of that asset is that these authorized participants when they see an arbitrage opportunity. So let's say the ETF shares seem to be trading lower than the price, the total price of the Bitcoin that is owned by the ETF. At this moment, what the the okay authorized participant will do is they will buy shares in the ETF, and then they will send these shares to the ETF issuer and receive the underlying asset. And therefore, the price of the shares will increase a little, the value of the underlying assets will decrease, and then the assets and the share price will come back into equilibrium. Does that make sense, Chris? Yeah, I think as most the, probably as I'm going to get it until I actually see it, but yes. Yeah, and, and this is how all ETFs work. Every ETF has authorized participants. And the fact that the Security and Exchange Commission required ETF applicants to submit a filing with listed authorized participants by last Friday suggests that this ETF approval process is very developed, it's very mature, and it's likely to go forward. It also speaks to the fact that regardless of Jamie Dimon's personal views on Bitcoin, there is a role for large financial companies like JP Morgan to make money by providing authorized participant services to these ETFs. And they don't actually have to have an investment view on Bitcoin. They're not really holding Bitcoin. They don't have to think Bitcoin has any fundamental value. They can just participate in this mechanism that makes ETFs work and earn money on a per transaction basis.
0: On January 4th, Bitwise tweeted, they surveyed 437 financial advisors across the U.S. to gauge their views on crypto assets. They said less than half of the advisors expect a spot Bitcoin ETF in 2024. Only 39% of the advisors believe a spot Bitcoin ETF will get approved at all in 2024. And the vast majority would see an ETF approval as a major catalyst. 88% of the advisors that were surveyed said they'd be interested in purchasing Bitcoin, but they are waiting until after the ETF is approved. 88% of the 400 and 37 that were surveyed. Also noted, access is a major adoption barrier. They said only 19% of advisors said they're able to buy crypto in their client accounts right now.
1: And I think that result is not very surprising because these financial advisors are several steps lower or higher in the financial product supply chain than J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan is sort of a low-level supplier and participant in financial markets, and these financial advisors is more akin to salespeople. They're managing portfolios on the behalf of retail and institutional clients. And so in, in a sense, they're almost selling securities. They probably don't spend a lot of time on
0: Bitcoin Twitter either. You know, They're not following the uh, ETF Bitcoin news really quick, or really closely, I should say.
1: And the regulations that these advisors are under incentivize very conservative, risk-averse approach to asset allocation and making recommendations to clients, because some of them are fiduciaries. And so for fiduciaries, you know, they have a legal obligation to do what's in the best interests of their clients. And so they can't really recommend anything that's too exotic or esoteric, because if there is a determination that that was uh, reckless, or they recommended something that was illegal or something like that, I mean, their entire business could be destroyed. So a very conservative approach. Low approach, yeah.
0: Although. In this survey, once you're in, you tend to stay in. So 98% of the advisors who currently do have an allocation, so the ones that are already in crypto in some way, they plan to either maintain or increase their exposure in 2024. So 98%, so 2% are going to reduce their exposure. And I
1: think that's consistent with the performance of Bitcoin as an asset because it has been the best performing asset over the past 10 years. And so once you taste that performance, there's just no logical reason and to hate it or reduce your exposure you probably want more exposure
0: yeah you're just going to look at the numbers and think well we could throw five ten percent at that this year see how that goes and then next year okay we'll, we'll do another bit and just turn it up a little bit also you got to figure as they begin to serve a younger demographic that clientele might request more bitcoin in their portfolio that all could kind of track over time yeah I, we could be this could be our bitcoin etf eve I like to mentally prepare myself for another delay because I believe the SEC legally does have one more delay card they can play. So I try to just prepare myself for that. And then I also am kind of expecting a sell on the news event. You never know with Bitcoin. Who knows, especially with the halving coming up. You just who knows. But if it does dump for a little bit, I'll probably turn on a DCA.
1: Right. And who is this Bitcoin ETF for? In my opinion, it's for your boomer parents. They would never go through the hoops to get a wallet or get a Coinbase account and buy Bitcoin and manage it themselves. That's just too much mental overhead for them. It's so that their financial manager or advisor can say, hey, listen, this Bitcoin thing, you might not love it, but it's been performing well. And I think it makes sense to be 1% to 5% of your portfolio. It just diversifies. And then they can say, okay, well, my financial advisor said so. It wasn't really my decision. I'll just go along with it. It's so that normies can get access to Bitcoin and institutions can get access to Bitcoin. It's for them. I think that there still is an incredible advantage for Regular people who are interested in this technology, interested in a long-term savings asset, interested in having at least one asset that is slightly insulated from government policy. It's sort of the gold cougarins in the bottom of your bug out bag. You can sell it for fiat if you want to, and the presence of an ETF, I think will make that easier over time. But if you hold actual Bitcoin, you get the full exposure to protection from monetary policy and the optionality of spending your Bitcoin whenever and wherever you want. And you won't get those protections from the ETF. It's just a paper wrapper. I'm
0: looking forward to it just being over with. I think it is close because multiple banks have made commercials. The one that was released this morning as we record, uh, it starts with a news coverage of Burger King accepting credit cards and people reacting to Americans needing to use a credit card when they go to Burger King. And this is like in the 80s, this commercial. And then it zooms out and kind of, it does a whole thing about how it's Bitcoin's time. It was a kind of effective commercial, but this is the third now. This is the third television ETF commercial, Bitcoin, spot ETF. So they wouldn't be spending the money to produce, even though they're kind of cheaper digital ads, I don't think they'd be spending the money to produce these unless it was close. Also, uh, CNBC was commenting this morning that the ETF hype for Bitcoin is well beyond what they saw for oil and gold ETFs. They said it's unprecedented interest. I don't know how they gauge that, but that is their take on CNBC this morning. I'm just ready for it to be over, to be honest.
1: Well, one thing that is over is a public exploration of Sam Bankman-Fried's various crimes. And so a recap, Sam Bankman-Fried was the What was he?
0: The hero of the industry for a long time. He was the featured poster boy of tech and VC, and uh, he was called the crypto king. He held private meetings with Gary Gensler on multiple occasions. He donated hundreds of millions of dollars, at least 100 million that we know of. I think
1: at one point he was the second largest Donor to a Joe Biden campaign. And he also made numerous donations to Republican candidates, though he used straw man donors for this, which it turns out is illegal. And his mother was a or is a bundler of campaign donations for, I think, Washington Democrats. I don't think she has connections to the Republican Party. And so part of the Prime Trust scandal was Prime Trust was a Bitcoin custodian, and uh, they also facilitated payments and things like that on the back end because they had a money transmission business. And Prime Trust was assisting Sam Bankman-Fried with doing donations to Republican candidates, but more on the DL because he had kind of positioned himself as a sort of Democrat-leaning donor. And he'd even said things like he would consider paying Donald Trump $7 billion to not run for president or something like that. You know, He, he, he would make statements like this. And it turned out that his crypto exchange had no assets. Uh, they had a deal with a hedge fund called Alameda Research that Sam Bankman-Fried also controlled that allowed FTX to basically give customer assets to Alameda Research to trade with. And then they lost all their money by taking risky bets on illiquid tokens. And it turned out they didn't have the Bitcoin they owed their customers, including many other assets, and FTX was deemed insolvent and put into receivership. Bankman-Fried was extradited from the Bahamas where he'd set up FTX so he could basically get regulatory arbitrage and use money to corrupt the Bahamian authorities, and he was extradited to the U.S. to face charges under an agreement that the Bahamas had to agree to the various charges that were brought against him in the U.S. And so they consented to charges around the FTX collapse and the fraud that he committed, but they apparently have yet to consent to further charges, including allegations that Sam Bankman-Fried ordered a employee to use their connections to bribe at least one Chinese official to release assets that were being frozen in China that were, I think, controlled by Alameda Research. And I think that this is, on the one hand, perhaps the Bahamas are part of the story, but I think... The wider optics is that this is a political corruption story because these charges would relate to the political donations that Sam Bankman-Fried made, and clearly his goal was to get kind of political amnesty and maybe some sort of regulatory moat around FTX because he was kind of spending money on politicians, most notably Maxine Waters, who famously blew him a kiss, I think, in a Senate hearing. This is just legal corruption in the U.S. It's it's legal to make political donations. There may have been some kind of election interference because some of this was done
0: during an election year. I think about 40 million of the spend was done during an election year. I don't remember exactly how it breaks down, but I don't think the entire 200 mil was, but 40 mil was definitely
1: during election times. That
0: was stolen customer funds.
1: And I think that because SBF really marketed himself as a Democratic leading donor, an exploration of these donations would probably provide a a lot of material that could be used for negative campaigning during the coming election season. And so I believe that there is probably incentive to bury this on both sides of the aisle in the U.S., but probably a little bit more on the Democratic side. And so it looks very bad. It looks quite corrupt because I think in the public interest, we'd like to know what sort of discussions were happening and were tied to these donations. What did Sam Bankman-Fried want? What were regulators willing to give him? These are public questions. I think it could also
0: raise questions about his mom. What is a money bundler and why, Why you know, and, and what kind of influence does a money bundler have and what kind of privilege does that extend to a money bundler's family? And are we seeing two tiers of justice because of this connection to money? Does it suggest that the Justice Department is politically motivated and influenced by the White House? What does that suggest? Like, it raises a lot of questions. I think it's just better if this quietly goes away. So this was announced. Basically in the deadest news period possible on December 29th, Friday before New year's in the afternoon, it was released just you know on over the over the news wire and a few a small amount of news agencies picked it up. The entire thing is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven paragraphs. That's it. And they're pretty short paragraphs. And then it's done. And we're not doing it. Everything just gets nice and quiet. And, you know, they're going to probably just give him a slap on the wrist for the financial stuff. I think we were expecting, you know, the law to really come down on Sam. I, I don't think so. I, I bet in five years he's clear and free of most of the stuff and he's about out, back out in the public life. Because this was really what was going to get him. Especially, especially if there was any kind of shenanigans with elections or Ukraine funding or anything like that that's been speculated about online. If any of that actually came to light and then had any kind of ties to democratic, money bundler or even the Biden administration or even Maxine Waters, a powerful senator. Nobody wants that what is suggested here is then a is a level of corruption that means that we can have no faith in any of these institutions.
1: And that doesn't sit very comfortably with me. And I don't want to sound politically partisan in this analysis. I mean, I just think these are the incentives behind it. I mean, Sam quite successfully tarred anyone who took his money with his crimes because that money was stolen from customers and no one asked where the money was coming from. And he wasn't under a lot of scrutiny. And so I think this is more of a broader story About kind of the state of US politics and the slow deterioration of US institutions. Well, the trial continues for his financial crimes. We'll see where that goes. And uh, we'll
0: follow that development if anything interesting happens there. I'd like to know what everybody out there thinks. Boost us in with your thoughts about Sam getting off here. If there is something deeper beneath the uh, iceberg, as it were, or if maybe Dad and I are just reading this situation wrong, boost in and let us know.
1: Well, I had a good week because Lynn Alden released a new newsletter, and it's kind of a recap of her writing over the past two years, really five years. I mean, she starts with some of her 2019 predictions. And I think that the overall trend is a theme she's been harping on a while, which is fiscal and monetary divergence, how the funding needs of the U.S. government are moving towards more debt issuance. But during a bout of inflation, the Federal Reserve, the monetary side of the U.S. government, had to attempt to tighten. And it started in 2019. Lynn had, had written a lot about how she was an inflation bull and a bond bear. And she emphasized how fiscal-driven inflation was likely to manifest. And goodness, was she correct. There was unprecedented fiscal expansion during the COVID crisis. And for a while, the U.S. Federal Reserve and global central banks supported that expansion with very low interest rates. However, by mid-2020, it was clear that sort of popular political backlash against inflation was going to prompt the Fed and other central banks to attempt to rein it in very sharply. And this was interesting, because over that period, the funding needs of governments globally, but specifically the U.S. government, had expanded rapidly because the fiscal impulse from COVID resulted in a massive amount of new debt issuance, and that debt had to be serviced, and tax revenues were falling. There are just persistent fiscal deficits in the U.S., and so that additional spending and the additional interest burden had to be paid for with more debt issuance. It's a classic debt spiral. This resulted in an interesting divergence because the Federal Reserve was See Reducing their balance sheet as the US Treasury was spending down their Treasury general account. And so, in a sense, as the Fed tightened, the Treasury loosened by directly injecting dollars into the economy via the medium of federal government spending. And there were other policies at this time that injected money into the economy, such as supporting the Ukrainian resistance against the Russian invasion in eastern Ukraine. And as a result, what we can see is that global M2, which is a measure of broad money, increased very sharply between 2018 and 2021, but then it sort of leveled out to a plateau after 2021. And this equilibrium was a result of these sort of di- divergent but opposing forces the Fed tightening uh, via spending down its balance sheet, letting bonds mature and roll off, and the US Treasury counterbalancing that with additional debt issuance and spending. This is
0: a story that you had touched on. Uh, I don't know if it was from reading Lynn or not, but essentially this Fed versus the Treasury, the, the Fed's hitting the break and the Treasury's hitting the gas at the same time. And if we are truly done with the Fed's tightening cycle, then this becomes one of the defining stories of this last cycle, this dichotomy between the Treasury and the Fed. like It really felt like one one hand was doing work to repair it or whatever you want to call it. The other hand was like creating, you know, breaking things at the same time, um, even though I realized they're, they're
1: not actually, you know, s- s- supposedly. And one interesting detail that Lynn doesn't get into, but jumped out at me while reading this, is that one of the challenges of the U.S. government at this point is that because there's so much U.S. government debt outstanding. And a lot of this debt, even though foreign holders of US treasuries are not adding to their pile of treasuries, they still have significant holdings. But what happens is that in times of recession, recessions generally start outside the US, outside the European Union. They start in very export exposed economies. Ironically, this also means Germany tends to be a leading indicator of recession, also Japan, even though these are developed countries. And as governments experience recession, also corporations in those jurisdictions, they need to service other debts as their, income is shrie- as their income is shrinking. And that means that they have to sell things to service these debts. They have to sell assets that are very saleable. Well, one of the primary assets that they sell is U.S. treasuries. And so there's this interesting dynamic where in times of recession and financial distress, the logic of the previous 40 years is that investors should pile into U.S government debt as a safe haven against the recession. But the actual dynamic is that because so much U.S. government debt is being used as savings overseas, they actually sell it instead. And this creates instability and dysfunction in the treasury market. That's not how it's supposed to work. And as a result, even in times when there should be massive demand for U.S. government debt as a flight to safety, the Federal Reserve ends up having to intervene in the treasury market and purchase that debt, which increases financial volatility and sort of stimulates Asset bubbles, even when they might not want to at that moment. An interesting solution to this that I think is broadly in the crypto consciousness, but hasn't really entered into the policy discussion yet, is that stable coins might be a way to solve this problem for the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury. Because the problem here is that while treasuries are a savings instrument worldwide, you can't give someone a treasury to satisfy another debt. Treasuries are not dollars. And as a result, that action of selling your treasury savings to get cash to pay off another debt, that creates dysfunction and instability in the treasury market. If instead You could, say, have a stablecoin issuer that buys U.S. treasuries and then issues a stablecoin that might even be interest-bearing. This might be a mechanism to essentially monetize U.S. government debt in a way that doesn't cause disruption in a very fragile treasury market. And so I wonder if, over the next few years, we see this as part of the discussion around CBDCs or wholesale CBDCs or maybe something like Tether or Circle becoming kind of a government-sponsored participant in treasury markets and monetizing U.S. government debt. Because we're still in an era of persistent fiscal deficits, the amount of U.S. government debt that has to be issued going forward is always going to be above $1 trillion. This is a real spiral. And if there's massive selling depending on a volatile global economy in the treasury market, this has the potential to create financial crisis. So I think there's a really interesting development here where eventually stablecoins, specifically dollar-backed stablecoins, could end up being an important tool of U.S. monetary and fiscal policy going forward. Because it would essentially be creating a customer for the debt. And that customer wouldn't buy and sell that debt in huge tranches right. like, very quickly as a response right. to market news. It would sort of potentially reduce volatility in that market. So
0: you're kind of saying their incentives are going to line up so that they're going to embrace private stablecoin issuers? As long as, you know, they're playing by the rules is what you think is going to happen. And so we're going to see more, more stable coins.
1: I mean, I think that there is a bit of a a conflict with the obsession with anti-money laundering and KYC and financial controls and a plan like this. Because as we discussed before the show, Tether has been the most successful crypto stable coin to date. But I think that Tether gets less useful, the more regulated it is. Because let's just say it, who is the main customer of Tether or who was the original customer? It was the product market fit of mainland Chinese investors who wanted to get dollars out of China. And they couldn't do that through the Chinese banking system. China has strict capital controls. And frankly, the U.S. banking system, because of their reciprocal agreements with China, was also not an option with them too. And so Tether came along and they were essentially a gray market. market shadow bank that issued its own currency based on some balance sheet, which we know in the past was insolvent. We know that they have had moments where they lied to customers. They said everything was fine and everything clearly was not fine. At the same time, they somehow managed to pull through and get past that. And they've had multiple settlements with US regulators and no US regulator has said, this thing is a Ponzi scheme. We need to shut it down. In their settlements, they've attempted to sort of bring Tether into the fold of more regulated financial companies. And so I think that Tether, Circle, PayPal, USD... These stablecoins are going to be competing for sort of a government license to be a storehouse for U.S. government debt. And they're going to have to provide some controls to the U.S. government around who can use them. But I guess they're hoping that those controls won't fundamentally kill their business. So
0: we're really going to have to get comfortable with the idea of stable coins. That's what I'm taking away from you, which I get the utility. I just can't help feeling like they're, um, you know, rickety, dangerous, risky. You know, they feel like the riskiest version of fiat out there. But I I see that there's a market need for it. And I I could see, you know, I mean, the meme of this episode is follow the incentives, right? Like follow the money. It's follow the incentives. And they're going to need a customer. They're going to need a good, reliable, solid customer. (laughs) Tether's, Tether's showing us the model, which almost makes me want to throw up in my mouth.
1: Well, Lynn continues. And she has kind of a a great summary of the large geopolitical blocks. The U.S., a block with weak production but strong consumption. The euro area with both weak production and weak consumption, and China, strong production, but weak consumption. And if you think about that broadly, you can see how those three pieces fit together to produce a functioning economy over a period of time. And I think that this balance is probably going to shift and, and be disrupted in the future because China seems to have fundamental economic, and political issues that might lead its consumption to be even weaker, and its production is reliant on strong global demand. And if the U.S., is in recession or has sort of persistent problems stimulating demand, which might be difficult given the relatively high amount of debt carried by U.S. consumers at this point, then China has no market for its production. And China has, of course, tried to open up new markets for Chinese goods through its investments in the Belt and Road in Central Asia and Africa. That policy was also forced by their large exposure to U.S. government debt and their desire to diversify away from U.S. government debt, which 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 of course looks very prescient after the demonetization of the Russian central bank's reserves after the Ukraine invasion. At the same time, the Belt and Road Initiative has been incredibly costly and uh, perhaps a failure. We don't really know yet, but it turns out that attempting to guarantee their loans by having the option to seize physical infrastructure in developing countries. You know, are property rights really that good in developing countries? If you do seize this infrastructure, is it going to be expensive and risky to sort of maintain that claim? We'll see how that works out. But I think that her overall conclusion is that the rest of the 2020s and into the 2030s is going to be a period mainly driven by government borrowing needs. Because the buildup of U.S. government debt and and debt globally worldwide is so high, Monetary policy needs to be arranged around making sure that fiscal policy doesn't break. It needs to support the consumption of governments, so that government programs, the military, social security, welfare, these things need to be funded. And so... The broad conclusion is that there's going to be significant political pressure for central banks to fund these programs. And while year-on-year inflation prints are reducing at this point, in the future, if government borrowing needs require it, then the central bank will likely be forced to take inflationary policies to support the needs of the government that regulates them. And I think that's the really big takeaway. Yeah, it seems like the undertone of this
0: is the possibility of recession. If you look at the situation in Europe since the Ukraine war, their energy costs have skyrocketed. They've been hit the hardest overall, in writes. Yeah, they have a relatively tight monetary policy right now as well. Um, They've decommissioned functional nuclear plants, as she points out. They relied heavily on Russian gas, which exposed them to the risk of external energy shocks once Russia invaded Ukraine. Now they're buying gas, you know, from us and other places at a much higher cost. And I think as long as that conflict continues, it puts massive, massive pressure on Europe and on their economy and on their energy prices. So you could have a situation where the U.S. slows down. I mean, in December, we lost 1.5 million full-time jobs. In December, in one month, in one month, we lost
1: 1.5 million jobs, full-time jobs. But Chris, explain to me how Jim Cramer says that this is the strongest U.S. economy and you just have to deal with it. What is he looking at? Because
0: we also packed on 776,000 part-time jobs, which is mind bonkers big in one month, in one month over 700,000 part-time jobs. And a lot of those part-time jobs are people that now hold two to three jobs. They're not new people coming into the into the workplace. They're people who already have existing jobs. That's where the most of the growth came from.
1: And if you're holding two to three part-time jobs, these are generally lower paid jobs, right? Like service work or factory and agricultural work. Is that right?
0: Yeah, and they may not have benefits, that kind of stuff. Part-time generally doesn't come with medical or vacation time, or sometimes even sick leave, depending on the industry. You know, part-time is a pretty, pretty great really in work and part-time can be just shy of full-time. It can be only a few hours. There's a big range in there of how much money people are actually making, which is why multiple jobs is, but some people are forced into doing and so you take in that account 1.5 million full-time jobs jobs lost in december 1.5 million people were laid off during the holidays you have germany slowing officially in recession europe continues to be under massive pressure as long as the war in ukraine goes which the biden white house is now directly funding this is looking like a recipe for a pretty big recession we're really on the verge of something here i don't know how, i don't know if it's going to happen of course we've been saying this for two years now
1: but it is looking pretty bleak well the last two quarters um Logistics volumes have also fallen, and that is yes. also a recession indicator. And the cost of shipping is skyrocketing, right, due to the war in Gaza, because and the, of the, and the, and the Red Sea. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so that is going to be inflationary pressure. Also, the price of oil is going up, and so gas prices are going up again. Like, it's not an insolvable problem temporarily, and there's an election we need to get through, so maybe they will have a few solutions, but I think it does mean more debt for the federal government. I think it does mean more more printing.
1: There's not a lot more strategic oil reserve to pump into the market to control energy prices.
0: This is on the verge of being a calamity. And whichever, whoever wins the election in the States is going to have a massive job. And depending on the situation in Ukraine, it's going to be a lot harder or a lot easier. Wow. I mean, this is getting really complex. This is, we're near calamity levels here. When you think oil prices going up, disruption in the Red Sea, shipping prices up, truckers down, 1.5 million jobs lost in one month. It doesn't seem great. That doesn't seem great. I'm not saying, I'm not screaming, saying the sky's falling, but it may be a recipe that makes more people realize Bitcoin is a safety asset, not a risk asset. But we'll see. We'll shake it all off. Go to JupiterBroadcasting.com and nerd out. Like, just don't even worry about it right now. Coder Radio 551 came out, and you won't believe the rig my co host Mike got. Wow. Uh, he also shares the process of transitioning from a mobile app developer to now working with the Unreal Engine and Vigigames which kind of gets to um, why he had to upgrade his rig. And we get into like the whole workstation lifestyle. I really enjoyed it. That's episode 551 and then if you just want to tune out for the rest of the year episode 543 of Linux Unplugged we did our predictions for 2024. You know, I got a good track record-ish so you could probably just tune out for the rest of the year after you catch that episode. And then we do it the state of the home labs in self-hosted. We recap all of our best self-hosted apps and what we're doing with
1: configs and networking and all of that. That's all over at my podcast network, jupiterbroadcasting.com. Now in privacy and Bitcoin education, we have quite a few references here to UTXOs and UTXO consolidation. So maybe you could just first introduce why this might be a pressing issue right now. This was coming up in our
0: real-time matrix chat room this week. You know, people are like, well, if the ETF gets approved in the next few days, does that mean, regardless if it's a buy event or a sell event, does that mean we're going to see a lot of high fees? And the fees are finally kind of down, really. You know, we're like like a a high-priority transaction fees, like, you know, like about $3 is the conversion rate right now. That's not too bad. So... UTXO consolidation comes up a lot when you see the Bitcoin fees go up. And it's something we addressed semi-recently in episode 116, Liquid Courage. We kind of talked about this a little bit and did a primer on some of the solutions around there that kind of lean towards privacy. But, you know, this is something that people still ask about because they're kind of learning, oh, uh, as the fees go up and then I try to spend my Bitcoin, I'm paying, I'm spending a lot of money to do it. And I was looking for a great series that I could link to people when they're in the chat room. And I thought that we should share it with the podcast audience because it's really fantastic. There are a series of articles from Uncharted. Chain Capital that are bangers. I read through them this weekend and save them all so I could share them with you all because they're they're really well balanced they're really well done they are long so sit down and spend some time but they get into what the mechanics of it why you want to do it your options there they don't really get into liquid but they talk about coin joins and they also discuss the privacy ramifications and this is something that I think I want to make clear to everybody is there's no perfect answer here but you need to be aware that say you consolidated all your individual DCA's maybe you DCA'd five dollars a day or ten or whatever it was or $100 a month, I don't know, and you did that for all of last year. Great job. Way to stack. Problem is, is you now have a whole bunch of transactions. And if you wanted to one day go cash some of that out to buy a house, you're going to get charged up the wazoo in 5, 10 years for Bitcoin transaction fees. It's going to be nuts. It's going to make you cry. So people are trying to avoid that problem today. But if you were to consolidate all of the transactions from your DCA into one big UTXO, when you go to spend that UTXO, whatever, whatever gets sent back to you sort of reveals to everybody watching how much Bitcoin you still have. And so say you wanted to consolidate all your UTXOs into one Bitcoin, and then over the next few years, you spend bits of that one Bitcoin, it would be possible for people that are watching the transactions to kind of have an idea of how much you have stashed, at least at that address. So you have to kind of consider how... Much you really want to lump all these together, what you might be doing in the future. And the Unchained Capital articles do a great job of walking you through that thought process and kind of talking about the best options in a way that I felt was really digestible and easy to follow and um, probably doesn't get enough attention for the quality of work they've done over there for these
1: articles. I think that if you're new to this topic, reading through these Unchained documents will give you a sense of what UTXOs really are. UTXOs are sort of actual Bitcoin and... And when you spend Bitcoin, you're moving UTXOs around. And because of the way that Bitcoin technically works... You have to be aware of how UTXOs function at a relatively low level if you want to achieve any sort of privacy on-chain. And one of the issues with consolidating small UTXOs into a larger UTXO is that that transaction generally links the ownership of all of the UTXOs. So if you receive some Bitcoin from a friend, obviously you guys didn't do any KYC on that transaction, but then you consolidate that Bitcoin with the Bitcoin that you were stacking on the Cash App or Strike or something, well now... Someone knows that that Bitcoin that your friend sent was going to you because the UTXOs from the centralized exchanges are marked with your or they're tracked with your associated KYC information. And that could or couldn't be a problem depending on various factors, but it's one additional headache when you're dealing with a high-fee environment because bigger UTXOs, fewer bigger UTXOs are cheaper to transact with. At the same time, they are less private, definitionally. It's a trade-off. There's probably not a perfect
0: answer because you can't really know you know how you're going to spend the bitcoin in the future that's why i am grateful that there are solutions either through coinjoin or really through lightning network even and the liquid network that accommodate for this it's not a unsolvable problem But as we see the discussions and questions around UTXO consolidation, I just, it's something I want people to be aware. It's hard to explain to people in a chat room, it's live, you know, you can give them some links and tips, but I thought this would be a good thing that we could put in the episode and then we can link folks to this episode when they do have questions because there's trade-offs there. It's definitely something you want to consider though when the fees are low. And so we want to talk about it now because assuming there is an ETF approval, you're likely going to see the transaction fees go way
1: back up. You want to think about these kinds of things while you can. And one piece of advice, if you're at all interested in Bitcoin privacy, is to run your own Bitcoin node. That's become much easier these days with projects like Nix Bitcoin. Umbral, oh gosh, there are so many others. Start9 has a Bitcoin node and a Docker container package. And with these package node products, it's also very easy to not just launch your Bitcoin node, but to also start a local mempool.space instance, some sort of software that looks at your Bitcoin node and tracks all of the UTXOs so you can look up your own transactions. Because one of the ways that people have traditionally dox themselves in bitcoin is they've looked up the addresses they own on a public block explorer and their ip address was logged and now their ip address which is usually tied to their identity, is associated with the UTXOs that they looked up. And chain analysis does this. A lot of the chain surveillance firms uh, seem to somehow get this information in an attempt to link UTXOs to personal identity. So I think that if you're into Bitcoin, if privacy is a thing that concerns you, you probably want to run your own Bitcoin node. And I think that's a pretty attainable first step.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great first step.
1: And it's fun. It is fun. And
0: I've seen more 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 listeners that are doing it. Uh, also, just Little public service announcement Bolts.exchange is available on Tor. Little PSA there if you're concerned about IP logging.
1: Remember, you can get in touch with the show, Bitcoin DadPod at protonmail.com, at Bitcoin DadPod on Weapon X. Also consider joining the show Matrix channel using a client-like element. Details in the show notes.
0: Heck yeah. And of course, you can boost the show. Embrace the Bitcoin revolution and the podcasting 2.0 revolution in one app and get a new podcast app. The Fountain app is killing it with their 1.0 release. I'm loving it. It's so great too, because Graphene OS just introduced Android Auto support and Fountain has no. Android Auto app. Uh, yeah. Android
1: Auto, finally. I'm in heaven, dude. I'm can in heaven. Can I I can just plug in my graphene yep. OS phone and play music yep. in the car now? Yep,
0: install the latest update and uh you're off. You gotta go enable it. There is um you go into uh, there's like a there's a screen. Anyway, you go look on their Twitter feed. There's a screen you go to. you have to enable it because it has to be sandboxed and all that? And then you combine that with like Fountain or whatever, and it's such a nice experience. Now, now if I did miss your boost, it's this is on me because I wasn't here last week. And I did a scrape. I think we got the right stuff, but if let me know in the Matrix chat or with a really small boost or something, just let me know. We'll try to do a Make good. But DJ came in via Podverse with a hundred and two thousand twenty four sats this week. How about that? It's an HNY boost. He says thanks for staying on top of the best stories for the rest of the last year. Since episode 100, he says he's been listening, and 2024 will be an interesting year for Bitcoin and adjacent industries. I look forward to hearing more from you guys about these shared passions. Your reactions are enlightening, whether or not I react the same way, but I still enjoy the affirmation and respect
1: any difference of opinion. Viva Bitcoin Dad DadPod! Well, thank you so much, DJ. And it's great to hear that we're not an echo chamber for you and you <laughs> make up your own mind about this stuff. That's exactly what we were going for. User 20497192 boosted in... 50,000 sats Listening on Fountain, my favorite Bitcoin show. Fun, balanced, reasoned, and hot news in a tight format. I came into Bitcoin on long form ramble shows, but lose patience with thin content. Dad and Chris always deliver the goods without fluff and nonsense. Well, we do banter a bit. Happy New Year. Please don't ever stop. Fountain is pretty cool too. Thank you for that very encouraging. Boost. Yes.
0: Thank you. Now you gotta go set that username so we know who you are, so we can thank you properly.
1: And that's a great uh, I-, I hadn't thought about that. Long form ramble shows. They're are quite a few podcasts.
0: Yeah. I think that's stage one podcasting. Um, but then you get into the high, you got to get, you know, you want to be high signal. I, that's always my thing with my shows. And I think you agree. And I think that's why we work well together is we want high signal stuff. And we're always happy to um, adjust, adapt, always like the feedback. Pitar comes in with
1: 25,000 sats. He's using Fountain. He says, Happy New Year's, guys. I'm loving the new Fountain. Oscar is killing it. I well, agree. Thank you very much, Pitar. And Ulysses also sent in 25,000 sats with the message, V2 transport equals one. This is a follow-up boost from last week, and I believe it was Bitcoin Lizard sent in a PSA that if you're running Bitcoin Core version 26 or higher, you can set v2transport equals 1 in the bitcoin.com file. And this will enable HTTPS encryption between Bitcoin nodes. And so now inter-node traffic will no longer be in clear text. So that seems like a great feature to enable.
0: It does indeed. V2 transport equals one.
1: Corp comes in with a row of
0: McDucks, 22,222 stats. He's using Podverse. He says, I have a follow-up on the miner I purchased. I'm operating at around one third of profit to electricity cost at the current price of Bitcoin. The ratio stays fairly consistent at different watts, though. You could set it to have." However- much you want to spend on electricity for that day, and then get the equivalent payout from the pool. So if I want to slot a quarter into the wall every day, I get some Bitcoin that might be worth 25 cents in a few years. (laughs) Right. All right. All right. All right. Thanks for the but you're also like you're you're out there doing it you're mining you're participating in the in the collective network uh, I would love to
1: know torped if ultimately you end up spending more on on electricity though that does seem like a tough one I mean I, I think he is and, and this is challenging right because he's essentially buying Bitcoin at a high markup right? yeah.
0: Yeah, which isn't, but it's KYC. That's the thing I love about it. It depends on the pool.
1: It depends on the pool if it's KYC Okay, yeah.
0: It's potentially KYC free. And, you know, it's yours. It's like truly yours. That's the pools. Anyways, I still, there's something
1: about it that that really speaks to me. True Grits boosted in 7,000 sats across two boosts. I'm still chugging away at getting caught up with my podcast listening. I think I'm slowly making headway, though I'm still two plus months behind. You mentioned in a previous episode my formula for catching up. I listen to non-boost shows before the boost-enabled shows for the first hour. However, Fountain recently changed sat earning, and I think it's for the better. I don't feel the need to do that anymore and can listen linearly. A lesson for all, don't overthink things. So I think True (laughs) Grits is talking about these sort of pay-to-listen incentives in some podcast apps. I really haven't messed with that, so I don't know too much about it. But he continues, I drive a Jeep Liberty. I was driving along, minding my own business, listening to the pod, when my car makes that notification sound indicating I should check my dash. No new errors. Weird. Um, A few minutes later, it happens again, but again, nothing. It wasn't until the third occurrence of this that I realized the sound bite used in the episode to censor swearing was identical to my car's notification sound. Gave me a good chuckle. So it sounds like we were swearing too much. So we need to stop that, I think. Us? Swearing? Ah, never. It must uh, must have been some other pod. Maybe it was interference.
0: Yeah, yeah, right yeah, with that, right with that. Thank you, True Grits, for the boost. Adopting Bitcoin comes in with 4,200 sats. Using fountains is happy 2024, Bitcoin dad Pot. I hope you had a good Roish into the new year, which is kind of like a slide into the new year. When you read this, looking forward to your sober takes and what it looks like to be exciting in a Bitcoin year. He says, coming in from Bavaria and remember that the sun will shine only if it ate up your pupusas. Oh, is that how that works? Well, we better get making pupusas then because I could really use some sunshine around the Pacific
1: Northwest. Well, thank you very much, Adopting Bitcoin. And thank you so much for all of your work on the Adopting Bitcoin conference. I think we both had a great time. I want to go back. I want to try a pupusa. I never got to try a pupusa. You didn't get a pupusa. Oh, right. No, because of the being the sick. Right. I never got a pupusa. Well, you know, you can actually buy frozen pupusas at Costco sometimes.
0: (laughs) It's not the same, man.
1: They're not terrible.
0: (laughs) Okay. All right.
1: Lemore sent in 4321sats with a happy new year boost. Thank you very much and happy new year to you too. Yeah, happy new year to you. Nullifier know Fire comes in with 5,000 sats.
0: Another great episode, Liquid Courage. My motivation to get a lightning node running again and boosting good content is a direct result of your attitude and approach to the show. I'll continue to boost and stream sats from here forward. Well, thank you. He goes on to say, here's hoping I can get a new mantra going with my boost. Bitcoin meetups are your civic duty. Connection is protection, as the podfather says, too. I agree. The meetups need to be happening more. We have been slacking in this show. It's just... Been a weird couple of years, but we really should do a dad pod. We could always do like a dad pod JB combo meetup at some point this year. You know, maybe we do some
1: P2P exchanges. Just saying we could make a whole Bitcoin event out of it. Well, the Seattle Bitdevs meetup is really good. And I have not been fulfilling my civic duty because family commitments have prevented me from going in the past. But I hope to do more meetups in the new year. And maybe we can support that meetup and get it a little bigger.
0: Could be, we could do something adjacent to that. Like you go to the meetup and then we all go out to eat afterwards or something, those of us that are dad pod listeners, just say and put it out there. Connection protection, Dad. Good for you. It's good for you. Thank you, everybody who boosted in. I don't have totals this week because uh, well, I wasn't here last week and I wasn't keeping track, but do appreciate every single boost. And they each go to motivate us and also sort of inspire us to have every now and then challenging conversations, but sometimes just great conversations on the show that we didn't expect. And that's a nice way to get support, get your thoughts on the show and uh, sort of test the Bitcoin network. And one of the things that I think is really neat about Boost that we don't talk about very much much is we're participating in a system that's dominated in sats and every podcast that's taking boost is talking about sats. And nobody's ever talking about fiat dollar amounts or not even really Bitcoin. And I think it inevitably is the way more people will be thinking about it. But it's one of the few things that is priced in sats and it just utilizes the Lightning Network in such a beautiful way. And it's Bitcoin at its best. Using Bitcoin in a way that is superior to what the fiat networks can offer and is so programmable. I just think that's one of the neatest things about the boost. And we'd love you to participate. You can do with a new podcast app, podcastapps.com, Podverse, Fountain, cast matic Everybody loves, loves, loves those. Albie also is available if you want to boost from, say, the web, like the podcast index, although is going to require a little plumbing now with Voltage or some other step with your own node, but they do have
1: great docs on all of that.
0: We'll have links to that stuff in the show notes. We'd love to hear from you.
1: This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on January 5th, 2024. I've been your Bitcoin Dad. This has been the first episode of 2024, and we look forward to an interesting, and a prosperous year for you all. No doubt about it. Thanks for joining us, everybody.